Dear managers, tonight's opera and ballet are not intended for innocent spectators. It is crucial to note that any undesirable messages or fallen chandeliers are not reflective of the opera specters, for there are such things as ghosts and we wouldn't want any prima donnas to fall ill. So feast your ears, let your fantasies unwind, and savor this double bill. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which two dudes talk two films, and that's all we really do. I am Dude One, Richard. Dude Two, Joe. And today, we have a very special third dude joining us today, or dudette, however she wants it to be. Um, She is one of the many great voices that we had on our Two Dudes, One Bad Night five-part Halloween radio drama. And she also happens to be the better half of one of the dudes, i.e. Dude 2. So welcome to the show, Allison Cola. Hello there. I was about to say, I'm not a dude. What am I doing here? <laughs> you can be whatever you want to be. Well, I am from California, and in California, all things are dude. As, as, uh, as the old 90s adage would go, I'm a dude, he's a dude. She's a dude. We're all dudes. Hey. Well, I'm honored to be here. This is, uh, (laughs) I've I've definitely tried to be the biggest fan of this podcast because I love both of you guys and, you know, one more than the other, obviously. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. What? (laughs) (laughs) That was a a twist for me. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I, uh, ever since Joey told me about your guys' podcast, I'm like, I am on board with this and I love this idea. Um, I mean, I'm also a cinephile, so I just love listening to people talk about movies. I love watching movies. So this has been like the perfect thing for me to listen to as well, just as a fan. We appreciate that. Genuinely. We actually do. And you are, and like, truthfully, you are more li- more likely the number one fan. You know, we had that other guy. There was a whole situation with that. But, you know. Yeah, he kind of stabbed <laughs> me. I'm not happy with him. <laughs> with a uh, but pin, you know he's mind gone you. Now. Not even with a knife. It was with a pin. Do you know how <laughs> embarrassing it is to die by pin? <laughs> oh, you know what? He got he got his he got his uh, comeuppance by Snake Pit and uh, Snow Leopard, I believe. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, he deserved that. Suck it, Brian from Idaho. I got on the show before you did. This is very true. Technically, you know, even in that piece, he didn't identify as Brian from Idaho. So you were you were Allison. So you technically, as yourself, were. Art. I'm just saying. 
Well, I, at least I'm not a cop who's also doing his bad Patrick Warburton impression. I'm, I'm not going to lie. When I read the script that um, John Armstrong, hi, John, gave me, um, I, I was like, I bet this is written for Patrick Warburton. <laughs> so I can't, I, I can do a lot of voices, but I can't do him. So I just used Patrick Warburton personality with my voice. And that is what ended up happening with uh, Lieutenant Allison. <laughs> You know what? It worked though. It was one of my favorite. Uh, it's one of my favorite characters. One of my favorite sequences in the whole thing, really. Uh, I I just die of laughter every time, honestly. Especially especially like going off of uh, uh, Officer Drew. <laughs> he will forever in my heart be Officer Gif Gif. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gifford. I had to drop that here. Uh, we love you, Gif. Another another great another great person. Love you, Gif. Before we get into a lot of things, as always, I must ask, how art thou due to and dude three? You go first. <laughs> Whoever wants to, I don't care. All right. Well, I'm fine. I mean, uh... <laughs> okay, moving on. Um... <laughs> no, I kid. I kid. Uh... I've been doing really well. Um, it's hard to explain on my side what all's been happening here. Um, I'm currently working full-time, very busy. Um, I work for our... Um, I don't want to say too much details, but I, I work for a car dealership service department. So we've been busy as heck because apparently transportation is classified as essential employment. So fixing cars... Um, handling the service records, handling financials and payroll and a lot of boring stuff that nobody wants to listen to on this podcast, really. But I, I, I've been busy doing that as well as um, trying to keep creative. My theater company that I do here locally, um, we've discovered that people like want to be entertained. So we've been doing old time radio plays and we've been doing them in public, socially distanced, safely done, um, at different venues around our town. Like we did one at an, uh, a coffee house that had an outdoor patio so people could be in their small groups and we could be up on a kind of a stage and be apart from each other. Um, and we would use these old classic silver microphones and we would read actual scripts. Like I was participating in an Abbott and Costello script. Um, I was in a Wild Bill Hickox skit. Coincidentally, I was a man in that skit, and I did a much better voice than that. Um, I'm not going to do it right now because it's really loud, and I don't want to <laughs> don't want to scare anybody. It's all good. No worries. They recently, I wasn't in these plays, but they recently for Halloween did um, the Telltale Heart. One of my friends was in that. Um, they did a play called Sorry, Wrong Number. They did one. That one was really thrilling. Um, and they also did On a Country Road, which was like... Suspend the best suspense is when you don't know what's going to happen and it just twists you at the end. I don't want to spoil any of these plays for anyone in case you want to look them up. I'm sure they're somewhere out there, but that's what I do in my spare time is I do as much creative things with my theater company as possible. I do a lot of acting and it's it's we're doing there. We're getting better. That's really cool and it's it's very appropriate to you know what we do here and everything. So. That sounds pretty cool. I know you were showing me, or didn't you send me a clip from one of the performances you gave? I, I did. We live streamed one of them. Um, 
we we did a we did sets of three most of the time because the the fun thing with the radio show is we can do them as pop up performances. We read our scripts in front of the audience. We don't memorize the lines, so we live streamed uh, the one where it was um, it was Wild Bill Hickok. Um, it was a, <laughs> a dopey little melodrama called Fleecing a Flock. I was. I wasn't a voice in that, but I was like one of those uh, sign holders that held cue cards for the audience. So I would tell them to boo or hiss for the villain or cheer for the hero. (laughs) And then the last one was like a really cheesy, um, almost kind of like a slice of life thing called Gilders, uh, like the Adventures of the Great Gildersleeve, who is a water commissioner (laughs) in his town. Um, And I was his secretary. He was, um, that one was really fun because I got to do three voices in that one play. All of them different. Oh, nice. Well, I was a dramatic Hollywood starlet. I was a little boy with a lisp. And then I was also kind of a, um, a ditzy secretary. That's a range. What can I say? They typecast me well. <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. We have some more coming up. So um, we're hoping to do some Christmas shows. Very cool. Very cool. And yeah, the holidays are coming up, which is crazy to think about. The way the <laughs> the way the world is right now, but you know, hey, that's why we're giving ourselves time right now. So, but in all seriousness, due to how how are you? I know you said you're fine, but you know what else is going on in your life? Um, I really am just fine. Uh, you know, just keeping my time. Uh, you know, watching uh watching some movies as like I normally do in any other week. Anyway, I was rewatching one of my personal favorite movies of all time, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, the 1950s Ray Harryhausen fantasy film. Oh, I love that one. It's so, so good, that movie. Um, just, just like, not even 90 minutes of just joy. Like, I mean, this got, the movie's got everything. I mean, you got, you got Sinbad, the sailor, and you got a cyclops, you got a two-headed bird, skeletons with, a skeleton, I should say, excuse me, with a sword, a dragon, uh, shrinking princesses um, and little kids as genies. It's it's wild. It's a great movie. And I was also watching the most dangerous. We watched that when it was on the. What was that? Oh, nothing. I was just asking if that's the one we watched it when it was on the Criterion Channel. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're good. Um, we wa- I remember we watched we watched Sinbad. I think it might have been on Prime, but it actually is on Criterion Channel now. Actually, Seventh Voyage. Um, I think we watched Clash of the Titans on on Flim- Filmstruck. Back when Filmstruck was a thing. Oh, Filmstruck. Rest in peace, Filmstruck. Yes. So I watched I watched uh, Seventh Voyage, and I also watched um, The Most Dangerous Game, which is from the same team that, that made King Kong, utilizing a lot of the same sets, same actors, um, and, you know, same, same directors and writers and stuff. You know, really, really fun, um, entertaining movies. Barely over an hour long, so... I definitely recommend if you just got like you just got like an hour to kill, definitely check that one out. Um, Joel McRae, Fay Ray, um, Leslie, um, I think it's Leslie Banks, Leslie Banks, and uh, Robert Armstrong. So really, uh, really solid movies. That's basically all I've been doing on my end. Very nice. And it, it's very much um, on your brand too. <laughs> like these are all definitely like these are definitely Joey oh, for sure. movies. Yes. For sure. Yes. For sure. I guess I'll ask myself, how are you doing, dude? Well, I'm fine. 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me, can I do it? Can I do it? Yes, please, please. How are you doing, dude one? I'd love to know. Don't patronize me. <laughs> <laughs> what? I was trying to be dramatic. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it, actually. I'm doing all right. Um, this past week, obviously, you know, for a lot of people, just been kind of a nightmare, but I, we're not, I don't want to get into that all much, but, um, on the plus, uh, let's see, actually, this is kind of cool. Um, so earlier on in the pandemic, I pre-ordered, um, a Mandalorian figure because I wanted to get a jump on that. Cause last time it was like a whole thing i might get into it i might have did i did i talk about it in the star wars episode you might Jillian? have i i don't again it's a four-hour episode i don't know what happened in that episode <laughs> and i was in it and i edited it look i'm still writing the wiki page for you guys so even i don't know about it yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah oh <laughs> uh, I, I if and just to reiterate so when they did the uh mandalorian figures um, last year for when season one came out they had the carbonized one and they had the regular one and i was actually off the day that you know was like what was it triple force friday or whatever and i missed out completely because i was like ah, oh, no one cares about star wars right now i think people are just annoyed with it or tired of it but of course that's never true with star wars so oh, no i completely no, no, missed no, no, out no. completely missed out i got the regular one uh, from uh, another great voice on this podcast, uh, Alex Wykey. Uh So I thank him very much for that. And then I got the other one. And I was very lucky when I got it. So I'm very happy to have it. It's on the wall right now. So when I figured that they were going to release a new one with like the, the Beskar armor, because he's got that new armor on the, on the show, uh, thankfully that came in the mail. So... Obviously, you like you the listeners can't see it, but I'm showing them right now, so that's him. Uh, I, I, this is just a little fun fact. Um, I've actually been recruited by my local Mandalorian costume club to join them, so I'm eventually going to have some armor to show off. Eventually, this, listen, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Um, and actually, I know you'll get a kick out of this continuing the Star Wars thing, so. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, my mother and my sister decided to go to Disney World, which is, like I said, is a whole thing, and I don't really want to get into it anymore. It happened now. Um, but they were nice enough to snag me something. This. <gasps> oh, I know what that is. This is the uh, Kylo Ren Legacy lightsaber. Yes. The, the lightsabers that they have at um, Galaxy's Edge. This is not a sponsored post, by the way, but Disney, if you want to sponsor us, please sponsor us. We will shill see, your stuff. See, she knows, Joey. She knows how to do it. She knows how to do this, right? <laughs> I, I could go into a full-on like 50s advertisement, like, get your Galaxy's Edge lightsabers only on Batu. Yeah, I would buy that right then. I, I, I have Joey, um, myself, and... Um, a third member, um, another dude, your brother, um, we all built lightsabers when we went to Disneyland uh, last year, which was probably one of my favorite memories of that trip was all of us going to the same uh, building ceremony. Because it, it, here's the thing, for anyone who hasn't done this and thinks you're just buying a dinky little lightsaber, you're not. You are no. building these lightsabers. So aside from the legacy sabers, which are you know the ones you get from Doc Ondar's, 
when you go and get the hand-built ones that you make yourself, you are taken in a small group to a high cat. I have a cat, by the way, so she will be occasionally <laughs> making noise and rubbing up against my computer. Listen, fourth dude. Allison, we've had dogs on this podcast. Dogs have have been. Yeah, we have, yeah. You know, so, and there was one time where I almost, I almost kept like Richard getting food as part of an episode. I really was so close. <laughs> I got, a, I got, I got a cookie. <laughs> anyway, continuing my rant about the lightsabers, they take you into a small group into this oval shaped chamber. You have your, you you select which saber you're going to build outside. They give you a pin to identify which saber it is. You're given. Um, the only plastic part of the saber is the inside chassis because if this whole thing was metal, it'd be so heavy. Oh, Because yeah. the rest of the pieces are all really solid metal and they're beautiful pieces. Like, I, I, my lightsaber is tucked away right now. It might occasionally make noise because I think it's haunted. I mean, you might have got a haunted kyber crystal, really. Well, it, I do have a red kyber crystal. I was the only one in our building group. <laughs> I was the only one in our building group to build a red lightsaber. <laughs> Uh, but it, they're beautiful. They're heavy duty. Definitely not combat rated, but they're glorious pieces. That if you buy them, they're worth the experience. You're you're not just buying a souvenir. You're buying an experience. You're paying to be part of your part Star Wars story. Honestly, it's so worth it. When I did mine, I had Joey film it, and so I have it on. Uh, it's not the complete version, so it's like it's a little bit edited. But on my on my personal YouTube channel, I have a video of like a good chunk of the experience, which is really cool. If we want, I'll send the link to you, Joe, and we can put a link to that. Watch my video on YouTube, please. Self promotion. Oh, you know, you gotta you gotta self plug all the time. Um, <laughs> but this is it, by the way. Ah, oh, glorious. Those of you who are not video chatting with Joey and Richard, you're mitching out. That was a pretty cool thing to to get in the mail. So I have been like messing around with it, playing with it, and stuff. So. It's just, it's really cool. So at least there's some good things that have been happening in recent pandemic related stuff. So that's what's been going on with me, really. And I'm trying to watch a lot more cartoons. Didn't you say you were looking at like a lot more of the un, um, underrated Disney movies? I think I heard. Um, a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying to watch a few of them. Like I earlier on, I watched uh, The Black Cauldron, which I'd never seen. And... Um, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, John Hurt, you know, two thumbs up, but then you have, um, I don't even remember his name. The main dude. The guy who plays Tarin. Tarin. The freaking Tarin. I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head, but I remember the characters. Yeah. It's just Tarin. Tarin was just like, dude, come on. <laughs> yeah. He's, like, like, he's, like he's, all you're doing is like, I, it's on, what? Like, I, I don't care. Yeah, he, he's <laughs> he's definitely a character in and of himself when it comes to like stacking up next to Disney's uh, other heroes. Oh, for sure. Um, and then I actually uh, started watching a few movies from this company called Cartoon Saloon. Have you guys heard of this? These people? I can't say. Um, that I have. It sounds vaguely familiar. It's an Irish centric animation studio. They actually are doing a Disney Plus show called Vikings, I think, or Viking School. I heard. Oh, I don't know when it's okay. coming out or whatever, but um, they did uh, the secret of the secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, which were both nominated for best animated feature, and they have a new movie coming out on Apple TV Plus called Wolf Walkers, oh. which looks really good. So I was like, I want to check out some of the other ones, and I've Song of the Sea was really good, 
Song of the Sea is very good. Um, it's got a lot of mythology to it, and it's it's kind of like it's it makes me think a little bit of like Jendi Tartakovsky a little bit. Is it Gendi or Jendi? Uh, it's Gendi Jendi. Just go Tartakovsky, I guess. Gif or Jif? <laughs> the Samurai Jack guy. It's got a, it's got a bit of that vibe to it, but I'm sorry, no, Gendi. We love you. <laughs> we do, we do. It's I totally worth checking out, and I'm really excited for Wolf Walker. So I'm kind of like checking out some of these movies um, and seeing what they're all about. So that's what more or less I've been doing, really. Phenomenal. Um, but before we get into the actual meat and potatoes of the episode, I want to just briefly mention. Yes, this is our first episode since ha- the Halloween one. For the months of November and December, you know, we're doing, you know, every other, we're doing every other week. So just keep that in mind. Our next episode uh, will be up November 27th. Okay. Day after, um, day after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So if you had it up to here with the family after Thanksgiving, you can uh, listen to us talk about uh, two more movies. And how upset we are with our family. ouch i'm just kidding oh man oof i'm just kidding i love you mom dad jelly i love you i was about to say i hope your mother doesn't (laughs) listen to this or she'd be have words she she listens periodically (laughs) hi tina she's also a fan i love you mom but yeah so uh we're having two episodes this month two episodes next month um, and we're actually going to have a special guest, hopefully again, I talked to him and he said, he's still, he said, he's still down, uh, for our next episode. And then, um, uh, for December, it's pretty much Christmas episodes. Really. We have, we, we have, we have our official Christmas episode, but then we're just doing like another like fun Christmas episode, which honestly, I think both of us are super excited for. You, you guys have no idea how Joey still hasn't told, I, I think I, did you tell I me might have told you. Well, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but we'll we'll send you a message after. I won't spoil it. I promise. But I'm I'll excited. just say I am. I, it might be the most excited I've been for any episode this series. Um, you know, as far as like the as far as the actual films go. Anyway, speaking of films, what are we talking about tonight? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great segue. You're welcome. <laughs> so. I, what can I say? I'm excited. <laughs> uh, we're talking about, of course, for our very first film, the 1925, correct? Yeah, 25, 25. Asterisk. The 1925 asterisk, Phantom of the Opera. One of my favorites. One of my all-time favorites. Now, I'm going to be just completely upfront, especially when watching this with you two. Two things. One, it felt like I was invading a date, which was so awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, like, you guys were just, like, chatting, and I'm just sitting here just like, okay. (laughs) Just, 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 I'll just let it go. (laughs) I'll be really honest. That is actually how Joey and I do our dates. Um, Joey is in New Jersey. I'm in California, so we're already handling the social distance thing. We're used to social distance because, you know, we don't get to see each other that often. Experts. So we we do Skype dates and watch movies, and we have to synchronize our watches and do all that stuff, and uh, we just commentary and do trivia all on our own. Like, we never, ever sit quietly and watch a movie. We, We just always are going back and forth, like, did you know this? Do you see that? Do you know about this actor? So... You got to actually see what it was like to be on one of our dates. So you're not wrong. Make funny voices. You know, yeah, it's the whole thing. Yep. 
I mean, I mean, there was some adorable moments. Like, don't get me wrong. There was definitely some, like, oh, look at us to go. Yeah, I would. Um, it, it's not a Joey Allison date until Joey's reads a title card in the voice of Kermit the Frog. Yes, that that did that did happen. <laughs> I was really tempted to break out the Miss Piggy, but again, I'm way I'm very loud, so I can't do my impressions um, without breaking microphones, and I already don't want to hurt your ears when it comes to editing. Fair enough. I'm trying to be quiet. I really am. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, so that was that was the first thing. The second thing is, especially compared to you two, I I know almost nothing in regards to like the 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 over encompassing like culture fandom when it comes to Phantom of the Opera. Like I've seen in full now two versions. There's a lot, honestly. Um, I just to kind of get into how I actually first got into Phantom of the Opera, because everybody has their gateway fandom. It's actually not the musical, surprisingly. What was your first? My very first encounter with anything that had to do with Phantom of the Opera was, and don't laugh, it was... (laughs) It was Goosebumps, the Phantom of the Auditorium. I remember that. I was a huge, <laughs> I was a huge Goosebumps fan, and mind you, I read the book first. But I, I didn't watch any of the Goosebumps TV show stuff. I read the book, and I, I, I read that book when I was a kid, and then I found out like, oh, this was actually a parody of something, and I, I dove deeper, and then I read the actual Phantom of the Opera book, which, mind you, when you're like a teenager reading this stuff not for not school assignments it's it, it can be a little weird <laughs> especially since like um the the book is it was fairly long to get through like it, it was just there are some books where you can just like breeze through it like nothing um but uh the phantom of the opera book is interesting because it does take place from a few different perspectives i i, I don't want to spoil it too much but because there are characters that we're going to talk about that are featured in the book it's interesting. And then I just kept diving deeper into Phantom adaptations. I actually did find a couple of the versions on YouTube, which if you can find an actual print version to support the restoration, please do that instead of finding YouTube. Um, I found the 1946 version with Claude Rains. That's one of my favorites. And then I found the musical. I mean, at least you got there at some point. On the note of the goosebumps thing, if if you want to throw if if I want to throw my hat in the ring, my first real experience with anything Phantom related was Phantom of the Megaplex. Oh, Disney yeah. Channel movie. Yes. Which having now had the experience of working in a movie theater is so much more like, oh my god. <laughs> Just yeah, like, there, good good gracious. <laughs> yeah, like every theater I think has its ghosts. Like there there's jokes in even my theater where I work that there's a ghost in the theater. You can't escape Phantom of the Opera has invaded like theater vernacular. If something goes wrong, you blame the opera ghost or you blame the theater ghost. Although some theaters are actually haunted, so your mileage may vary on actual level of haunt. Um, but it, it, we were actually mentioning this while we were doing our watch. It's like the the musical version of Phantom of the Opera is probably the one that the most people are familiar with. So it's kind of like the Disney version. And don't get me wrong. I love the musical so much. Actually, Joey took me there just last year and I was thinking about that today. <laughs> Joey, why haven't you taken me? Richard, Richard you're... you're... No, I don't want to hear your excuses. No, no, I, I, I don't want to. 
you man, you you were just you were just complain. Why are we so high up? Why can't I see his face? This is stupid. And you would have fallen asleep. And I probably would have fallen asleep too. Well, you know, we did fall asleep during 2001: A Space Odyssey, but even then, I wasn't. Like, I was like, oh. Joey wasn't allowed to fall asleep on um, our trip because I was too busy next to him bouncing in my seat from excitement. This is true. This is <laughs> like a little kid. I acknowledge it. I mean, we were up like back row, like back, 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 back row. I think you explained this in the Hamilton episode. We were up in the back, like nosebleed seats, and I was still having the time of my life. My favorite performer, because after a while you find out different actors who you like better, or like you just kind of do your research. Uh, Jeremy Stoll, who's my favorite Phantom, was our leading man for the night, so I was having the time of my life. And it was honestly one of the most fun things I can remember doing. In a long time. And this is why you're still together. I mean, I'm not going to deny it, but... <laughs> it, yeah, it's it, it's something. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I never actually expected to find a man who likes Phantom of the Opera as much as I do. Because I find my love of Phantom of the Opera annoying to me. <laughs> does that ever happen? Does your own obsessions like um, drive you crazy sometimes? Like, dang, why do I like this so much? A little bit. Yeah. Well, it, it's just funny that all the things that I like and that I didn't think anyone else was going to like, Joey likes. So. Yeah. <laughs> we just kind of get along. It works. This is, yeah. It's, it, it is, it is a, a, a perfect fitted puzzle piece. It does. But um, that's, that's my timeline with the Phantom is uh, going kind of. Not necessarily backwards from most people, but that was my introduction slash encounter with the Phantom. Encounter is a good word for that, because the encounters with the Phantom in any version are definitely memorable. Like, this one is has left such a mark on uh, film history. Like, the sets are historical, The Lon Chaney's performance is epic, the makeup, ugh, the makeup is unforgettable. Yeah, I want to I want to get a little bit into my fan. So with the, like with this movie, you know, I had seen other versions of Phantom. Obviously, you know the the musical I, I had seen a couple times by that point. I had watched an animated version of the Phantom with the Lon Chaney one. It was always one of those films I had heard about because you know it was a famous silent film. His son would be become the Wolf Man. You know, and I'm like, okay, I recorded it on like one of the TCM, like, like Saturday night, like Sunday night, you know, uh, midnight silent film screenings that they would have. And it was one of those, it was kind of one of those like movies that sort of changed my life, weirdly enough. Oh, wow. And it wasn't something that I, I thought was completely evident at that point. But I was, I just knew like Cheney's performance in that, which is really like, the reason to see this, you know? Like, the Phantom, the character of the Phantom, like, I feel like with any sort of version, it's sort of, it, it, it's sort of, you need that part to work, and it soars in this. I mean, he is, like, equal parts, like, menacing and ominous, but also mysterious, romantic, tragic, pitiful, and it's it's all done with, with, his, with his body language, um, with his incredible makeup but i want to talk a little about lon chaney 
you know, because obviously you guys know his son, Lon Chaney Jr., the Wolfman. His, oh, yes. His mm-hmm. dad was Lon Chaney Sr., famous silent film star. And it's crazy to think that, like, a silent film star like him existed. Because when you think of, like, the silent film, you think of, like, the romantics, some of the romantic stuff. Or, like, an action star like Douglas Fairbanks or the comics like Chaplin or Keaton and Lloyd. Chaney, while not all of his films are horror films, he played a lot of the same character pretty much. Uh, where, you know, he's he, he isn't exactly the most handsome leading man and he, he's in love with someone, and, you know, those hopes are dashed. And, of course, he played characters like Quasimodo and the Hunchback of Notre Dame before this. His his performance in The Phantom uh, really is his most iconic. And think about his makeup, too. Like, the book describes The Phantom like, like a death's head, you know. And as far as the live-action versions are concerned, none of them have come close to Cheney in my book. They, they've all, like, they're all maybe interesting or, like, different. Sometimes there's not even a disfigurement for some of them. Some of them just, like, Gerard Butler looks like a bad sunburn. But with this guy... Don't get me started on Gerard Butler's deformity. That's actually my least favorite. It's, it's real bad. because It's real bad because he doesn't look that bad. But with Cheney, there's no doubt. Like, this guy, if you saw him out in the street, you'd be, you'd be startled. You know, if you just first saw that. And... Audiences were startled. Startled is putting it lightly. <laughs> people were fainting in movie theaters. Yeah, yeah, people were fainting. And in the initial marketing for this movie, there were, you did not see the Phantom's face. You you saw, like, the Phantom mask or, like, the back of the Phantom or a side view of the Phantom. You never saw um, his face. So it always kind of infuriates me when, like... Because I, I get it because it's so iconic. But when you have, like, a VHS release of it or some of the Blu-ray releases will have his makeup you know, as, like, the cover of that art. And I love the ones, some of the discs that I have for the fandom, my favorite ones are the ones where it doesn't show it at all, you know? And so you, so if you're, like, a first-time viewer, you don't know what to expect. Not that you're going to be, like, as scared of this as, like, a modern thing, but, like, still. I want to know your thoughts on that, Richard, too, because, you know, you're on his face. On on his face? You're the first-timer, so we want to know what you think. On his face? Well... I will say this is this is um, at one point uh, just because you know I my silly relationship with my mom. At one point, uh, this is probably what made it kind of not as so scary to me as it probably would have been um, if I had never seen it. But I just remember like when I was younger, whenever um, I like my mom and I would like prank each other, and how we would do it is uh, when I, when the, you know how people boop. You know, the whole booping thing? Like, it's like, oh, it's a little cutesy thing. Yeah. We would go the extra mile and pull the nose up and say Phantom of the Opera and then run away. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and um, there was one time I even printed out a picture and then put it on <laughs> on her mirror in her bedroom. So when she woke up, she saw it. She went, dang it. <laughs> that was her only reaction? <laughs> oh, that's funny. So it's just a, it's like just with that silly memory, that silly connection I had with that image. And then even like going back to the Phantom of the Megaplex thing, they show his face in that movie because there's a clip that they play from that Phantom and they show his face in the movie. Oh, I forgot about that. So I was, I I knew what he was going to look like, but I didn't like when I was watching it now, I didn't know what his mask looked like. And so I actually, I actually prefer him like just with that makeup. Because I thought the mask was, it was just okay. The 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 flap was kind of funny. Yeah. 
<laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen the mask design of uh, Lon Chaney's fandom, it, it is a bit odd because it consists of a top portion that goes from um, just about the top of his forehead down to under his nose. And it, it, it is important later because Lon Chaney worked with it to create some very startling expressions, even though he was masked. Uh, but from the nose down, there's like a weird flap of fabric that not not even I'm all that fond of. Um, <laughs> if I'm going to be 100% completely honest, my favorite mask design is the one from the 1946 uh, Claude Rains version. It's the it's the double mask where it covers both sides of the face, but it's very elegant. It almost looks like it could be porcelain. It has a very cat like quality uh, to to that mask. The the Claude Rains the Claude Rains one, and it's a good mask. I, I'm looking that up so I can look at it. Yeah, it, it's a very good classic clean design that just looks so good. And even though the 1946 version strays a bit from the source material, like they change a few things here and there, Eric, Eric is given an Eric is the Phantom's name. That is his canon name. They give him a last name though that is not necessarily canon, but it's been my favorite. It's uh, Eric Claudin. Yep. French speakers, I apologize for any butchering of pronunciations. Don't at me. That is a nice mask. Um, Sorry, I just I just looked it up. I was like, that is a very nice mask. <laughs> The design that they put into the 1946 version, because um, they're both made by Universal. The 1925 version was like the original, and then they did the 1946 kind of like a remake. So Hollywood remakes are nothing new, folks. They, they it, it will be continued tradition. It's a time honored tradition. True, true. And they also with the with the with the 43 version. Of, of Phantom. Um, is it 43 or 46? I'm pretty sure it's 43. Yeah, it's... It, the 40s version. Let's go with that. Let's split the difference. They even used the the, sta- the, the same soundstage, um, Stage 28, which was uh, famous and universal because they built that stage for Phantom, and it until it was taken down and demolished a couple years back, um... It was uh, the oldest um, soundstage in Hollywood because it was built in 1924, you know, and it was one of the only that was one of the only petitions I ever signed was to save that. And the Universal claims that they because some of the opera boxes from that from the film still survived at that point. Universal claims that they saved them. I'm hoping that they turn up at like the Academy um of motion picture arts and sciences museum whenever that gets oh. to open i hope it gets to pop up there but it's unfortunate that that set had to be torn down um i'm i was devastated when i heard that news just utterly tr- crushed uh, as far as other things with this the the production design in this movie uh, to get to other noteworthy things um and i'm sure we're going to talk more about cheney later but the production design in this um, is like the set design and all that is incredible. You know, you do feel like you are in the catacombs of the Paris Opera, or especially when you see like the grand staircase. You know, that's incredibly lavish. And when you see behind the scenes, in fact, I was mentioning this to you guys while we're watching the film. Uh, well, I think one of the art directors or whatever who actually had some knowledge of the Paris Opera, I think Ben Carré. He had some concept art, and he didn't. I don't think he stayed with the project fully, or at least didn't see it to uh, through fruition. But when he finally got to see the movie in the seventies, he was shocked at how how much they replicated his style um, in the film. You know, so 
it's it's really is kind of incredible to look at. But yeah, it's it, there's a lot of really like really crazy things to to look at in this movie as far as just the visual component. It is a beautiful movie. Oh, absolutely, it, 100%. Even just that whole like sequence, like the whole thing's like more or less in color. But just that one sequence that's like painted almost, you know, or like um the masquerade scene you, yes, you mean? Yes. Yes. Oh yes. It's um two-layer Technicolor, isn't that isn't that right? Yeah, two two strip Technicolor. So when people think of Technicolor, they think of Singing in the Rain, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, The Red Shoes, wink wink. Um wink. and and with 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 whatever. <laughs> with with two strip Technicolor, it's it's two two pieces of film that that produce that color and you get some beautiful reds in there and you know some of the stuff is a little little muted but that that's it look it actually looks really nice um especially when you get a nice really nice clean print of the movie oh yeah and there's another sequence in this um where you remember when they're on the rooftop and the fan you see everything else is blue but the phantom is colored and he's he's red and he's just like the his capes blowing in the wind and it's such an impressive sequence but but that was part of the restoration. So this goes into a big part of these older movies is restoration. Um, with, with that scene, they had to digitally restore that specific instance. Because originally, that to achieve that effect, they did something called the Hanshegel process. Which I don't know the exact details of how they did it. But basically, the result that you see on screen was basically what they saw in 1925. But... They had to digitally recreate that to sort of capture that. In fact, actually, the later part of the masquer- parts of the later of the masquerade ball sequence are also similarly touched up digitally because they just that's the the color versions of that just they they, they haven't survived, faded probably, faded, um, destroyed even. Um, just so many so many different things you can um, uh, you can look at with that. But going off of that, let's. Um, now that we address like the two best things about the actual movie specifically outside of other external elements, the, the, the rest of the cast and the story are, there's something to be desired. <laughs> I mean, Phantom of the Opera ain't exactly, it ain't exactly like the greatest story ever told. Yeah. But man. <laughs> there is a weird thing when it comes to Phantom of the o- Opera adaptations. They shine in certain areas and when they shine they shine in other areas it, it, it's like it it's almost like polar opposites like it goes really great one direction but it has to go really bad in another direction like there are really strange versions that stray so far from the original source material that it uh, material that is not even phantom anymore um joey knows the one i'm talking about and i'm not mentioning it because that's it? even too raunchy for this podcast i don't know what she's talking Oh yeah. Oh, you know what I'm talking about, Richard. We were discussing it. (laughs) No, we're not talking about that. Keep going, Allison. No, for like for the sake of our listeners, I'm not (laughs) mentioning it. If they want to dig down that rabbit hole or rat hole, if rather, um, they can do that on their own. (laughs) So go do your own research for once, will ya? Oh, man. Don't let us. Don't make us do all the work. Let's get back to the. Let's get back to the 1925 film. Yeah, Christine. I, I love Mary Philbin, and she does a great job. But her Christine has nothing to do aside from stand there 
and react. And it makes me really sad because as much as Christine is a character in the book and she kind of does the same thing, she's a very reactive character. It's one of those things where it doesn't necessarily age well, at least in the musical, which also gets a lot of things weirdly odd. At least they make Christine somewhat proactive in her own fate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as much as much as you you can without making it, you know, completely verge off, you know. And then you got Norm, Norman Carey as Raoul, who I was saying this to you guys while we we're watching. He he's also come up as like Lon Chaney's romantic rival in The Hundred Pack of Notre Dame, and in probably the the movie I would say he gives his best performance um, in Todd Browning's The Unknown, a uh, very twisted twisted movie that's only like 50 minutes long but it's so good imagine just having this guy show up to every movie that you're in like finally i got the lead ah oh, crap it's him again cheney well in in, fa- in fairness in fairness the funny the thing is like you know norman carey popped up in things but he was not a movie star like cheney cheney was like a huge box office attraction he was one of mgm like mgm's had him for a while until the end of cheney's career on you know untimely death you know, Cheney was a huge, huge movie star. Whose movies made made money, you know. Um, but go continuing off of that, like the like the rest of the players, that just there's nothing really that interesting. We have another like, we have some comedic backstage thing with like the ballerinas that are just kind of like what, huh? And you have the one stagehand that's like weirdly obsessed with his head. Yeah, the one stagehand. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not I was thinking about the other guy um who who finds that guy later on. They're both the, very uh, like just very, like he's yeah. He's an unnamed stagehand. <laughs> he's just sitting there in the back caressing this head just like uh. Yeah, that that's Joseph so. Bouquet for anyone who is a fan of the book is what we're talking about. And then there's yeah, the, the clown stagehand cuz he he does have the physicality of a clown. Like, he falls down and does a lot of pratfalls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they are trying to inject humor. I don't know. Well, and I'm going to get to that now. So, Phantom of the Opera is one of those movies where, you know, we hear it all the time with, like, Suicide Squad, Justice League, where you hear about these stories of, like, reshoots and new directors coming on. So, the credited director for this is Rupert Julian, which Lon Chaney hated his guts. Like it was so bad that like the cinematographer at points had to be like a like the the middleman between the two of them, and at one point Cheney told him tell Rupert to go to hell, <laughs> you know, and that that was an actual like thing, Oof. you know, and so for a lot and like sometimes it would get you know other cast members upset, and Cheney, who was actually a pretty decent like director of actors because he's a great actor, he actually directed Mary Philbin. Yeah, or I, it's been said, I believe, that he's he's directed Mary Philbin in some of the sequences where they are together. And that's where some of her stronger scenes, I would argue, come into play. But, yeah, like, there was, like, a, a world premiere version where it had a, you know, had what we would imagine as, like, the classic, like, Phantom ending where he gets redeemed, you know. But the audiences hated it. They were so negative. And this was, like, this movie went out on a freaking whimper. And they had to do reshoots. They had to edit, add in like other weird subplots and stuff, which is in another version of the movie um, that I did not show you guys. Because this is actually a silent print of the sound reissue of The Phantom when they reissued it for sound in 1929-1930. But 
yeah, and then they had to do reshoots on that, and they had another other directors and other people involved trying to get this thing finished, and it ended up making money. You know, it ended up making money, and now it's it is a movie that has I would say has miraculously stood the and I don't want to say stood the test of time because it makes me think like okay, there's nothing hokey in this. No, it's like it's a movie that in a way in a weird way it is a classic because of Cheney's performance, because of the set design, because of the connection with Phantom of the Opera. You know, but it, 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 this is a messy movie and it's one of my favorite movies ever, but it's such a messy, messy movie. Sometimes the best things are disasters and that's why we love them, right? I mean, people are flawed. Art is a, a, you know, when people make art, you know, the art is just going to have some flaws to it. That was actually just, very profound. This this is true. You love You love things for their flaws as much as for the greatness of them. That's very profound. I like that. That's why I'm an optimist. Even right now, which is weird. It took him twenty. <laughs> it took him over twenty episodes, and he finally got there. Good job. <laughs> yeah, we're still waiting for Joey. Anyway, <laughs> I'm already over there, so uh, come get, come get on my level. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, talking about the ending, it's it's weird to jump to that because I think that's one of the things I actually like the least about this movie is I don't like the fact that they go on this wild like weird chase scene at the end it's just weird and it is out of character for what actually does happen in the in the book big shocker spoiler for like an over 100 year old book the phantom lets christine go even though she chooses to stay with him to save uh raul he lets is her he go. more of a tragic character in the book? He is, and that's kind of why I feel this ending cheapens it a little bit, because the whole idea is that he understands he's a monster. Eric is very self-aware of what he is and who he is. He does a lot of bad things, and he knows it. He doesn't like that he do he does bad things. At least that's my interpretation of it. He wants to be normal. His ultimate goal in the whole thing is not just to get Christine, is to be not a rat, like not a sewer rat. He lives in a sewer. He lives underground in a musty, dank cellar. And it frustrates him. And in the very end, the eleventh hour, Christine shows him what is uh, canonly described as like the first actual sign of affection that was ever given to him. There's even a line in the musical that says this face which earned a mother's fear and loathing, implying that not even his own mother loved him. Nobody loved him. And Christine gave him one sign of affection and he was like, I can't do this. He he comes to his senses and realizes, I can't do this. And it ends in the book on an ambiguous note that he dies shortly after the events. In the musical, he disappears in different versions, different things happen. But he does get usually that one moment. Oddly enough, not in the 43 version either, though. They, they kind of show up and then disaster strikes. Well, that's also just like a trope with like, especially older movies and production codes and things where, you know, you can't have like somebody who's like responsible for the deaths of people in that manner to be like redeemed. Like look at King Kong. King Kong gets shot down off a building, you know, and he's just just an animal. He had nothing to do with like getting captured and all that. King Kong did nothing wrong in his life ever. No, I mean, mean, listen, they, they came to his island and then they took him. And then you know what? I'm gonna eat some people and and throw a lady off a building. That's what you get. 
it's what you get. It's what but you get. With, yeah, with, but with with back then, you know, it was just like the matter of like, okay, this is this felt like a whimper, you know, to have like that redemption. Like we appreciate that kind of nuance today. But Universal also wanted this to be a moneymaker. They wanted this to be rousing, exciting. And I'm sure in, in certain instances it was exciting for some audiences back um, back in 1925. But one thing I, I do want to mention, because this was a silent film, and because it is a silent film, you know, it, they don't always have specific scores attached to them. It's not like when you watch Star Wars you know exactly what piece of music you're listening to with Star Wars. You know what you're going to listen to with Superman the movie, or The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. With a silent film, there are very few instances where the score from back in the day is the score that's attached with the movie today. Attached with the movie today. So, like, Metropolis is one of those weird examples where the score that you listen to on the Metropolis Blu-ray is the score, is like a re, is a re, um, you know, they, they re-recorded it, for a modern audience, the original score. You know, with most silent films, they like a composer has to come up with their own interpretation of the movie. So it kind of makes it like this weird, like decades bridging art form, I like to think of it, where you have somebody, you have a piece of media from almost a hundred years ago, and then you have somebody else come in with their own interpretation of that media in the form of music, and it kind of melds together. And that's definitely the case here um, with Carl Davis's score for Phantom, and that's really why I wanted you to watch this version, because mm-hmm. I love the work of Carl Davis for one, and his music in this is, I think, really helps a lot of this. It movie. really it was brilliant. I love the way that it actually did end up matching. Um, like there would be an organ playing in the background, matching Eric's playing of the organ in the movie. That's a masterful thing to handle even in modern movies is having the score line up with the action. Yeah. Never mind it in a silent setting where, you know, you have no sound effects. Your music is the emotional cue for what's supposed to be happening in the scene. Um, Like, if you put in the wrong piece of music, you can completely screw up uh, a silent movie. I think my favorite instance of that is uh, the unmasking scene where it's, it's ominous and threatening and then like, when when Eric gets like you know upset at himself at how he got so angry and and all that you see him crying the music turns on it becomes a more like a lighter more romantic piece and it that 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 change was so natural and so beautiful and it's one of those scores where I bought it on CD I think it's an out of print score elite you know but I I bought I bought the CD cuz I think the music is is really strong on its own um one thing I do want to mention like with Lon Chaney uh, he was born to deaf mute parents, and so we, a lot of his communication, you know, was through sign language, through physical gestures. So it sort of made him an ideal person for the. <laughs> I see you moving the hand. It made him an ideal person for silent film. Like we were talking about this, his use of hands in this is so brilliant. Where like the way he like gestures Christine, or like with the way he like places an envelope. Or pl- takes away bottles of something. It, it's it's really it's it's as much of, it, as important as like the rest of like, his face and all that. You know, it's very elegant, very fluid. Just... Oh yes, like uh, that is something that I've noticed has kind of bridged the Phantom adaptations. Is that the Phantom is very good with his hands. Like he just has such a fluid use of them because he's supposed to be a musical genius. Like he can play violin in some pieces. He can play um, 
the piano slash organ. So it, <laughs> we were calling it out as we were watching the movie, just how often Lon Chaney's hand would appear and um, like he would curl his finger and beckon Christine. Or there's one scene where he's like poking his hand out of a, a, a secret compartment to place an envelope on the desk and it's just very ghost-like, like a very deliberate ghost-like movements. It's not just like a quick toss or anything like that. There's a lot of thought put in how he moves his body. His physicality is just excellent. For sure. I just want to also mention, just because it helps connect with our second film, you know, again, we have the idea of like the older figure trying to lure, lure the younger younger character as far as like their art form you know, um, and, and tr- almost making like a Faustian pact, which is the opera that is featured in this is Faust. It's almost like it's a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, oh. you're on to something. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's that's very um, important to mention. But, r- r- yeah, honestly, I was very curious about Richard's reaction to this whole thing. <laughs> it is really when i was thinking about them like i know allison has seen this before but like richard i'm like hmm (laughs) (laughs) i know i actually did not know that you hadn't seen this like that was something i was thinking about i was like how many versions have you seen and then you said the two yeah i've now seen two in in total we need to get you to see more i'll i'll have to fix that at some point though i'm not entirely because i've seen clips of the I'm assuming the one that must not be... No, it's a different one. It's a different one that must not be named. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces of that one. Um, the one the one I am most familiar with is... Because, you know, as I've said before, I, you know, I really like Hammer horror films. So Hammer did a Phantom of the Opera, which was... Is okay. Is definitely different than, you know, this one or some of the ones that, you know, more from... That I've heard story about and whatnot. But um, this one... It was basically like it kind of made me think of uh, our other movie we're going to be talking about because the whole plot is essentially uh, Michael Goff, Alfred, love him, um, plays this really like honestly like a giant like Me Too case because like he hires this uh, star like the singer to be in his musical, but it's only it's mostly because he's like got the hots for her, but. And he tries to, like, put moves on her, but um, one of the, like, directors or, like, choreographer or whatever is like, nah, you know, that that's, the, t- t- no, that's not happening. So, like, he saves her from that and they, like, have a relationship. But, of course, everything's going wrong and all this stuff's happening. And um, there's a, you know, there's a phantom living in the sewers underneath the theater and whatnot. And in this version, um, the phantom is trying to get revenge on Michael Goff's character because the whole musical that they wrote... Uh, was written by him and so he's like trying to get revenge for him stealing his music and driving him crazy and whatnot so he lives in this you know cellar and also disfiguring him because like his whole face like caught on fire or something so kind of like the 43 version yeah in a lot of ways i guess a lot of ways. i don't know i've never seen it it's weird because like all the adaptations <laughs> borrow bits and pieces from each other rather than going back to the original source material <laughs> <laughs> I I know everybody's like sick of remakes, but I, I'm waiting on the ten year rule that Phantom of the Opera will eventually be remade because the the last movie, like the serious big budget movie, was the um, Joel Schumacher 2005 Phantom, which oddly enough, even though it's from the musical, is my least favorite just because 
aside from, ironically, my least favorite character, Raul, um, oh shoot, I just forgot his name. What's his name? Uh, Patrick Wilson. Thank you, Patrick Wilson. He's literally like the best singer out of that. Emmy Rosen did a good job, but she does the thing I don't like with Christine's about being like too pitchy. I get that she's supposed to be a soprano, but it's too pitchy and too thin. Not enough like actual backing to her voice. I'm not even going to start on Gerard Butler. <laughs> he doesn't deserve my wrath. He's good in other things. So you're saying he will not be dining in hell tonight? No, I will spare him. This is not the Phantom Kick. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I, I just, I despise, I, there are things in that movie that I despise. There are things in that movie that I like. Patrick Wilson being one of them. I, I, I want to see another Phantom rise up. I want to see an actual, like, serious attempt at Phantom of the Opera. Oddly enough, when Universal announced their now-defunct Dark Universe, I was sincerely hoping for a Phantom of the Opera story that would have been a wonderful horror-gothic um, romance. And Yeah, that would be cool. Gosh darn, Tom Cruise ruined everything for me. <laughs> Just stick with Mission Impossible. I blame him <laughs> for the loss of my Phantom remake. Listen, I, I think that the, the funny thing is, I think Tom Cruise, at least as of late, has been has been pretty good at picking projects. But the Mummy was one of those huge, huge misfires. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh, not not good for anybody. Ugh. And listen, that that whole Dark Universe thing got me so stoked for a freaking Javier Bardem Frankenstein movie. Yes, and that—that's not happening now. Oh, so I'm like, I'm like, what the hell? So many missed opportunities. So many movies that we'll never get to see unless Universal, you know, actually gives it a try, and they don't try to tie it into like um, the Marvel monsters. And you know what else I just read? Speaking of the Dark Universe thing, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Guillermo del Toro of the many projects he was going to do, he was going to do a Frankenstein uh, with. Uh, Doug Jones as Frankenstein, but it was going to be more in line with, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bernie Wrightson's design of Frankenstein. I know I've showed Joey in that comic I have, the Frankenstein Alive Alive. I don't think I've seen it. Um, I've I've seen definitely an interesting, uh, the National Theater's Frankenstein, and they have a, a very interesting design where it's not the green, tall monster. It's just, it just literally looks like a man stitched together, or rather Benedict Cumberbatch stitched together. I did see um, that image, yeah. It was actually really good, and it was available for streaming um, a while back. I don't know if it's still available now. Um, you could stream it on YouTube, um, but it's one of those one of those things that's always on and off. Yeah, I remember. I remember because sometimes, sometimes, like when, when theaters were open back in the day, they would there would be screenings for it every oh, now yeah. and then. I so. remember commercials for them, and I'd be like, "Huh." This is a side tangent that has very little to do with this with, with the current movie that we're supposed to be talking about. Um, but I want to live in the universe where all of Guillermo del Toro's unfinished projects exist and are finished. Yes. Yes. Just that's that that's if I could change reality, if I had the Infinity Gauntlet and could change reality to suit my needs, I would have all of Guillermo del Toro's finished projects. So, that would be it. Well, I, I think what we can say with this movie is there, there's a lot. Oh. Before I forget, uh, Carla Lemley is in this movie. For those of you who don't know who Carla Lemley is, um, she was the niece of the 
Universal Studios founder, Carl Lindley. And Carlo was one of the prima ballerinas in the movie. Was the prima ballerina in the movie, I should say. And very small role. But she was also in the Lugosi Dracula in the beginning where she's like re- reading that passage in the beginning that she falls onto Renfield. That's Carlo Lemley. Um, and she um, she was the last surviving cast member of both films uh, until when she passed away in 2014. Um, and she's on a lot of those like universal like documentaries and things. And she it's real, it was really interesting seeing her inside because she, she was part of the family business and she was in those movies and got to see, you know, some of these perform legendary performances uh, firsthand. So rest in peace, Carla. Rest in peace. Thank you, Carla. In any case, I think, I think that about wraps it up on our very lengthy discussion on a fan. I think this was very, very good. <laughs> we encompassed, we encompassed a lot. I feel like we, we talked about more about this than almost most other single movies, which is really good. Yeah. Um, but I think it's about time we go to our subterranean lairs for a brief, brief intermission. When we come back, we will be prancing around for our next film. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. In our previous segment, we got on about various phantoms and various things. One one specifically, but it was kind of an all-encompassing phantom-related conversation, which is fun. Um, and now, we are going to uh, another stage in another time. The, what year was it, Joey? I don't know. I don't remember. 1948. 1948, yes, thank you. Um, the 1948 film, The Red Shoes. They're red. They're very red shoes. I love this movie. I think this is among my first Criterion uh, watchings with you, Joey, but it wasn't my first. My first one, I think, was uh, City Lights, but this was one of our earlier ones. Yeah, I think you're right. Had you watched Criterion movies before... You met Joey? Uh, I did kind of without knowing. Like, my technically, if we're going to squint, my very first Criterion movie that I ever watched 
without knowing Joey, was the uh, 40s version of Beauty and the Beast, which is entirely in French and black and white. But that's because I'm a Beauty and the Beast obsessed person and I cannot help myself. Yep. As I'm looking at your Beauty and the Beast poster behind you, so it makes sense. Yes, I have a Beauty and the Beast poster behind me. It's a great, it's a great poster. And actually, next to it, um, if I'm going to have a chance to show off, I actually have a painting of uh, Beauty and the Beast in the background. It's of the stained glass, and it has Belle and uh, the Beast in front of it. But the reason why I love that painting so much is it's actually signed by Paige O'Hara. I got to meet her, and she signed my painting. Yes. And she signed my Blu-ray, and she signed my CD. That's cool. And she said she liked my hair. So, Paige O'Hara, if you're ever watching this, hi. <laughs> that that would be a big thing for us, just, just to have her listen. Oh, she like, should listen to the Beauty and the Beast episode. Yeah. Yeah. Joey, send it to her. <laughs> On it. <laughs> call her people. Have your people call my people. But actually... Um, Going, steering back on track, uh, Joey actually introduced me to a lot of Criterion films, but when it came to The Red Shoes, again, I had an unusual introduction to it. I was made aware of it by a throwaway line in 1970s, a chorus line, the movie version. Um, there's um, a couple of the characters in there mentioned that they got inspired to start dancing because of The Red Shoes. And... I was curious and I looked it up and saw that it was a real movie, but I never found it or watched it until um, I met Joey and then Filmstruck became a thing. Oh, Filmstruck. We didn't have Netflix and chill. We were uh, Criterion and Discuss, which just goes to show how much (laughs) big nerds we are. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. <laughs> so we watched uh, we watched the Red Shoes, and uh, he would tell me all the fun facts about it, and it ended up becoming one of my favorites to the point where I'm actually watching it now uh, silently, ironically, um, as we're recording. So you know what, you're doing a great job too, because like I don't like for most people, I imagine they would just get distracted, but you're you're keeping on, so I'm I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm proud of me too. The Red Shoes, 1948, directed by. Powell, the duo of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, they'd made a couple other movies before this, uh, Matter of Life and Death, or whatever, I th- whatever it was, or what was it, damn it, I forgot that name, but Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Black Narcissus, and some other movies, um, I believe Michael Powell and Pre- Pressburger, or one of the two, got involved with Thief of Baghdad, which is one of my other favorite movies of all time, and one of my first Criterion films. But the Red Shoes is is probably my favorite one of theirs that they did together, and really is just a, a dazzling achievement in a lot of ways. So the Red Shoes, for those of you who are not aware of the story, you have this young up-and-coming ballet dancer. Vicky Page. Vicky Page, played by Moira Shearer, who really wants to make it big. She wants to be the best dancer Mm -hmm. and she gets herself into a party where she is able to meet Boris Lermontov played by the great Anton Valbrook. Listen, like he is so good in this movie, but basically he's, he's like the impresario, like producer type of character where he is orchestrating everything, but he's not a specific creative force. Like, you know, you in the movie, one of the cool things that Richard, you pointed out when we watched this was, the company of people of the of this ballet company actually feels like a ballet company. Yeah, like everybody has everybody has a job, whether it's like 
the 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 conduct the conducting of the music, the set design, the choreography, or if there's some of the supporting ballet players. In fact, there's a lot of like really long shots, and I forgot about this too, where it's just you get to see just people doing things. I was gonna say, yeah, there's just like a million different people like doing a million different things. Like, there's not any like space in the background where someone is not doing something that is important to whatever production they're putting on at the time oh yeah which it, it's true to life because again i do a lot of theater stuff so it's actually really appropriate to why you brought me on to this episode there's always like the one guy and i could say this you want to press and usually it is the director or the producer because you you want to be you want to be the ingenue you want to be the star so it's kind of weird that i can relate to vicky page in a way not necessarily with the ballet thing though i i cannot dance for the i cannot i can kind of dance but i cannot dance Mm -hmm. ballet I i can do the waltz i could boogie a little yeah, stage dancing and it has different levels. And when you get into like hardcore ballet, I have friends who are ballerinas, and my God, anyone who says like I remember you were saying this in the uh, Black Swan episode again, harkening back to what you previously said, ballet is not a sissy's game. No, you have to be hardcore. <laughs> like if you get kicked in the face by a ballerina, I imagine your entire head just like goes all the way like like your head and then your spine like in freaking predator <laughs> like it's just yeah like getting... the strength in those legs man oh it's horrible not that i know that from experience but i've been kicked you know i've been, <laughs> I've been kicked by some pretty strong dancers by accident I, I i'm very accident prone backstage <laughs> and on stage i'm glad to see you're still not here. necessarily my own accord that's well that's a rant for another day that doesn't belong on this podcast but um it, it, it this movie does a great job, like you said, of depicting the stage life of a company of actors, of dancers, of performers. Because when you're in a specific company, you actually really form very close bonds. They, they're your coworkers. It's your job. Um, even if it's community, you, you work together with these people so closely and you form bonds with them. But there is like, you know, the boss, that's Boris Lermontov. And he's, you know, you want to impress the boss. That's what you do when you're in that kind of a situation. And the the way it almost kind of... I've always kind of thought of the story as like a mirror world version of Phantom of the Opera where if the Phantom was successful and Christine actually wanted him. Right. Yeah. Which is why I, I picked this movie because the character of Lermontov, you're right, he does make me think of sort of like a Phantom uh, type of character, but... The one thing I would say is that the Phantom, one of the big things for the Phantom is he wants love. He wants to be, he, want, he wants a com, like a true companion. Whereas the character of Lermontov is interesting. He just strives for the art of ballet, of these productions. You know, it, it has to be perfect. And like there's another character in this movie who, you know, it's kind of like goes parallel with Vicky's storyline where she's like the top ballet, dan- top ballerina, but... She is going to go off and marry somebody and he wants nothing to do with her anymore. And it like it he's really just pissed off about it. And it's like she's dead to him at that point. But it's not even about like a matter of like romantic love or anything like that. It's a matter of obsessively creating just beautiful art. And it it goes back to some of the best. He has some of the best lines in the movie. Like when they first have their initial interaction, he asks her. The question, why do you want to dance? And she goes, why do you want to live? And that that directly just kind of like, it's like, this is it. This is going to work. 
Then she falls in love with the young, the Julian Craster, who also has an interesting subplot. Particularly the beginning of the movie, though, like, this movie deals with a lot of, like, artists, especially young artists, where his teacher straight up steals his music uh, in his, like, major composition. Listen, I honestly thought that was going to be, like, more involved in the plot. (laughs) Like, I, I was like, I literally thought, I was like, okay, so he's going to have, like, some weird, like, vendetta or something against this dude because, like, he let that happen or something. I don't know. And then there's the line um, that Lermontov says where it's like, you know, what's worse, I'm paraphrasing, but, like, what's worse, you know, him stealing your music or, or your music being stolen or him having to steal it. Yeah. And then that was mm-hmm. it. <laughs> like, that was yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it, it is weird how they drop that subplot, but they bring uh, uh, Kratzer in. Caster? Craster? Julian Craster. Yeah. Craster. Thank you. You can just call him Julian. 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 They, they bring they bring our boy Julian back in um as the house composer for the ballet production. They're putting on a story within a story, which it's always a funny thing when they do that in any kind of art form. Um, like with Phantom of the Opera, we mentioned they were doing Faust. In this version, they're putting on the titular story of the Red Shoes, which is a Han Christian Andersen story. And that, it's really interesting to see the creative process go around that because they're doing their own thing. I don't think there's any actual other adaptations of the Red Shoes as far as I know of. Am I wrong? There's like, there's Uh, other movies uh... that have like the name Red Shoes. But I don't know if they're specifically, like, again, and again, this movie is such a definitive, like, this is the Red Shoes. When you think of the Red Shoes, it, it is the, the Powell and Pressburger, um, Powell and Pressburger film. Though, admittedly, like, when I hear Red Shoes before I watch the movie, I thought it like Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. It's like the Ruby Slippers. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, they're only like a few degrees off from each other, aren't they? Yeah. 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 They actually look fairly similar, although the the red shoes are a literal pair of ballet slippers that are colored red, whereas the ruby slippers are a pair of pumps. Yeah, pumps. Not that I'm not that I'm you know getting into the nitty gritty of the details or anything, but sparkly pumps, very sparkly pumps. If we're going into like back to the Phantom discussion with the Technicolor, this is. Um, definitely a more colorful film quite literally mm-hmm. um the, the design and everything it just pops out everything is very vibrant like even when they're not performing or doing any of the ballets when they're just doing like the behind the scenes stuff the movie just pops out with color and lush lavish sets and uh, didn't they do some of this on location or am i wrong it looked like a lot of it well, richard and i were actually talking about that with the movie but it's been a while since i've looked at like a lot of the behind the scenes for this movie it's actually been a couple years i think the last time i watched this was with you allison so that was a while ago and it, i was thinking about it i'm like because i remember with black narcissist which is another pal and pressburger movie they shot that whole thing if I'm not mistaken, on a soundstage, which is pretty incredible because it's a beautiful looking movie. And this one, I feel like, yeah, they probably did. They did end up, you know, shooting on location. I mean, by that point as well, they were a huge, they were huge names, you know, and I imagine this would have been a more lavish production. Plus, I was reading into it a little bit too, where I think, I think Michael, I think it was Michael Powell, where he was, he was sort of relating his experiences with like, knowing like this Russian produ- like ballet producer in the Monte Carlo scene and all that stuff. But yes, Technicolor. So Jack Cardiff, King of Technicolor, also did the cinematography for Black Narcissus. 
won an Oscar for Black Narcissist, if I'm not mistaken. Um, did not receive a nomination for this film, but it is, let me tell you, it is gorgeous, this movie. You all, you both know that. Like, it is beautiful. That, that listen, he didn't get, he didn't get an Oscar nomination or even an award for that one. That's a missed opportunity. Looks like the Oscars were unfair even back then. Yeah. No, yeah, the movie, like, because again, like Phantom, this is a movie I'd never seen before going into this, so, but I knew that, like, color was, like, a big thing, so going into it, it was weird enough seeing it in color, because, like, seeing an old movie in color is always just, it's still kind of weird, unless it's Wizard of Oz, just because I've seen that so many times and I'm used mm-hmm. to it, but with this one, it was just kind of, it's just kind of weird, because it's just, like, like, any old movie just feels like a period piece now, in a weird way. <laughs> right. And so, like, watching it, you're like, wow. This is just how they were. Like, dang. And, um... It, it really kind of... That that feeling is uh, emphasized more when... Uh, you watch the movie in color. And you just see, like, the way everything looks. And it just... Like, it looks alive, really. Like, everything, because of, like, the, the way the colors and the way everything was shot, like, every, like, the movie itself feels alive in a weird way. You know, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say this, but it does kind of make you feel like you were transported a little bit to, like, this particular time period. And then into, like, all, like, the more surreal aspects of the movie where you're just like, whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot of surreal aspects. Uh, particularly with that, um, I believe, 17-minute long uh, ballet sequence, which was hadn't really been done quite like that on film or that was surprising yeah you weren't expecting that were you i didn't expect an entire ballet in the middle of this movie i'm like why is this two hours and 15 minutes long it's not (laughs) only a, a 17 minute ballet in the middle of the movie it is completely removed from the rest of reality like it it doesn't even feel like um victoria page um is on a stage but I'm just that rhymed. Um, it, it feels like Vicky is di- literally dancing like somewhere else. It still feels kind of like a set because obviously there's that surreal tone to it. Yeah. But um, all of a sudden she's not in a theater. She's somewhere else. There's a whole uh, cathedral. There's a carnival. Um, there's this whole sequence where she's dancing in the red shoes because the, the girl in the story is supposed to be obsessed with this pair of shoes and she wants to wear them but the shoes will not leave her and she ends up dancing herself to literal death. Oof. Like spoiler for the fairy tale, the red shoes. Um, <laughs> fairy tales are dark, man. If you go into the, like, so the actual fairy tales, they're dark. Don't even get me started on Hans Christian Andersen's tales. They're dark. Listen, you think the um, little mermaid is just, you know, she wants to be where the people are. Mm-mm. Uh, don't get me started on little match girl oof that one hurts which ironically um disney actually animated and released a little match girl short and they paired it with um one of the re-releases of little mermaid uh but that's entirely different again disney not sponsoring but you totally could sponsor us hey um just saying (laughs) i like she gets it joey she gets it Not her, too. Listen, we could get them, though. We could get them. <laughs> Moving on. Now I sort of want to get into the topic of restoration. I briefly alluded to this in The Phantom, 
segment of this episode with some of the digital stuff that they did for that. Um, with the red shoes, they did a digital restoration for the red shoes. And a lot of that was because this film is a three strip technicolor film. And like any film, it deteriorates over time. And when you see deteriorated film, it ain't pretty. And in the case of the red shoes, the damage is very evident you know, like, when you watch, like, the dem- restoration demonstration, like, the before and after, it's shocking, really. So, it needed to be cleaned up. And one of the big issues I think some people have brought up, you know, again, I haven't done much research into this because it's been a while since I've talked about the red shoes. But one of the big things people bring up is that, yeah, this restoration looks nice, but is it the red shoes that people knew from decades prior? Like, it's one thing to clean up a movie, but some people might suggest that it's, possible to overclean a movie. Uh, I know one other example I can think of is like the Disney films. I always see like the, the screenshots of like a Disney movie before it's digital, digital restoration and after, and that it can sometimes take away certain colors and it just gives off a different vibe. Like with the older ones that are obviously were made on film. Um, but one thing with this restoration was that it was, uh, Martin Scorsese, I think was one of the ones that was really spearheading this one. And he's a huge Powell and Pressburger fan, so I can't imagine that he would have taken this film into the wrong direction. And also, I haven't seen the other, you know, what the Red Shoes looked like prior to this outside of those restoration demonstrations. Nor was I somebody in 1948 able to see a print of the Red Shoes back in the day. So, yeah, there's that. But there's a lot of questions with restoration and all that because there's no right answer with some of this stuff. I mean, with George Lucas and, like, the special editions, it's very... Like, there's, like, obvious things. But, like, with something like the Red Shoes or Phantom where they're trying to replicate something and... Or even, like, Mighty Joe Young, I think, had, like, a tinting thing uh, in the movie. But, you know, there's no there's no right answer. I want to hear what you guys have to think about this. I mean, I agree. It depends on, you know, a lot of factors. But, I mean, when you say you have someone like Martin Scorsese leading the charge for, you know like doing the restoration stuff. I mean, you know he's going to go hard. Like you know he's going to go all in for sure. I mean, it's good that he's leading the project. Yeah. yeah. It, it's good that you could see the passion in it cuz it's the print that's available now um either in Criterion form on Blu-ray or DVD or whatever or um it's on HBO Max. Um if you have that. That's how the, I watched it. Yeah, the version that's available now is so gorgeous and crystal clear that it it you would never have guessed that it had that much damage to it, um, which I'm really glad about. As as much yeah. as I do like to kind of see like the grain of older film, um, at the cost of having it actually be damaged, I actually really do prefer this beautiful restoration. Oh, um, for and sure. I'm very thankful that we have it. It's just so glorious. I will say, but, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh no no no, go ahead. I was say, um. Speaking of watching it, I do have a bit of an anecdote, if you mind. If you, like, I don't know if Joey told you about this, but this was this. <laughs> so, oh dear. So okay, um, I obviously you know a continuing saga of mine on this is the various times uh, I've fallen asleep uh, watching movies. Um, so last was it what was it last night? A couple nights ago, when did we watch Red Shoes, Joey? Um. I want to say, jeez, was that, what day was that? Was that Monday or Tuesday? Maybe, maybe Monday. I think it was Monday. Yeah. So, we're watching it, 
And, like, I, I'm still, I'm not used to, like, older movies that are, like, over two hours. I'm used to, like, you know, modern-day two-hour movies that are, like, you know, explosions going on every half second. So it just keeps your attention going. Um, so I'm watching the movie, and I'm really enjoying it, but I'm also, like, kind of nodding off a little bit. Which I'm like, no, not again, not today, not right now. <laughs> like, it, like, it was genuinely, like, a thing. And then, um, Joey's like, and Joey notices, obviously, and so he's like, we're almost done, Richard. It's okay. You can do it. You can do it. Like he's like he's like he's actually cheering me on, which is really nice. Next thing I know, this man over here decide like like we're watching the movie and I hear <laughs> I'm very familiar with that sound. <laughs> so I'm like I'm like, oh no, it wasn't just me. <laughs> so I go, yeah. Joey. And he's like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Then, it's, it's funny because The Red Shoes isn't one of those movies where I've ever fallen asleep. And you and I actually have a soul bond because I've fallen asleep watching Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, multiple times. <laughs> I've fallen asleep. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 nothing can beat the record, however, of me falling asleep during The Walking Dead, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but Joey and I have many instances where either, him, either he will fall asleep or I'll fall asleep because we... Obviously, we're on a three-hour time difference, so we'll... Like, yeah, yeah, all the time. We'll just be so tired from one of us doing <laughs> crazy stuff all day. Just like, yeah. But it was, just, it was just really funny that, like, I thought I was the only one falling asleep. The best part, though, obviously, was at the end when the movie was finally over. And I, like, the phone, the, the phone, because we, you know, we're voice chatting on the phone, video chatting on the phone, pardon me. And the phone was literally, like, down. <laughs> And I was like, Joey? Yeah. Joey? 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 <laughs> Joey? And now he was gone. He's oh, out. Joey. So I hung up. I don't know how many times I, I don't know how many times I usually call for him to see whether or not he'll wake up, but I, I give it a few times. I, I think it threw it threw me off too cuz like daylight savings was the day before and I would I would have been going to bed normally at that time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did fall asleep towards towards the end. I was worried about. I was more worried about you, Richard, because it's like you have never seen this movie, and I like I, I didn't want to go into this conversation <laughs> where you're, where you're like, wait, what? She she has the red shoes. What? What's going on? Somebody jumps? Huh? What? What do you mean? And, she's and, and by the way, what? Even though we're talking about sleeping during this movie, we are no way implying that it's boring. No, we're no, just no, no. Adults and we're just tired. <laughs> well, quote unquote, adultish. Adultish, <laughs> childish, tired adults. people in general. I mean, the, here's the thing: the movie is, it, it's not boring at all. No, no, There's no. a lot of wonderfully built tension between the characters. Like Lermontov is just fantastic. Uh, again, he does have that phantom-like quality to where he's just this creative god. Everything he touches turns to gold. But he, the, he has the bonus of not, you know, looking like his face went through a blender. Um, Though he looked like Walt Disney to me a lot. Like, I wasn't going to be the one to say it, damn it. <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. Well, well, yeah, what he did, does look like Walt Disney. What, what, did, what did we call him? him? What did we call him, Joey? What was his well, name? I, you had one name. I called him Walt Disney. <laughs> Walt Disney. <laughs> Walt Disney. I like oh, that. Oh, God. Um, but no. Walt Disney. Lermontov, okay. Anton Valbrook, great actor. If you if you really liked him in this, I recommend watching Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. But in this movie, like we talked about with Cheney with the hands, like his use of ha- hands in this, like the one scene where he's by himself in his like red robe or whatever, 
and he's just like just fuming over what he knows about about Vicky and Julian, and it's like the scene where he like shatters the 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 mirror glass or whatever. And you see his thumbs twiddling, or just like the is the cold way he responds to things. Um, you know, just the, just the framing uh, of of all that is just fantastic, and. Uh, the visual language of this movie too is impressive. Like the opening scene is one of my favorite bits, where you see where you you see, uh, Vicky's Vicky's aunt or whatever, like trying to get um Lermontov's trying to get Lermontov's attention, or trying to get like the composer's attention to get Lermontov's attention, and some of it is just com- done completely visually. You know, there's some great things with that, and then my favorite, I think one of my favorite Lermontov things. I know I'm going off, but my favorite Lermontov things are trying to pick the red shoes. And you know, they're looking at all the different pairs of red shoes, which one, and his he takes his cane, slam, and they're like, but what about that? Slam. These are, and it's like these are the ones. It's a super short shot, even like it's not even like fifteen seconds long. They're just going down a line of shoes. He finds it, tap, and then the scene ends. It, it's it's just a quick glance. Things are done with such subtle and we <laughs> nuance that, you know, might have been missing in our previous film. <laughs> It's it's just really, you mentioned nuance and I was like, yes, that's what's missing here is actual, you know, character mindsets rather than just having like scary monster, kidnap woman, he must die. You know what? Speaking of woman, speaking of Vicky specifically, I do want to say one thing like, because after watching it the first time and then having to watch it again, so I knew what was happening, uh, (laughs) um, the, um, I felt so at the end of the whole thing. I felt so bad for Vicky because it's like she fell in love, she got to be a star, but now it's just like, you know, she's in this position where she still wants to dance, but she's in love, and yet, you know, these two dudes, <laughs> um, <laughs> these these two mm. gentlemen <laughs> are basically like, listen, if you if you do this. You can't be with me anymore. If you don't dance, you're gone forever. And it's just like, why can't she have both? Poor Vicky. I'm going to say this just in devil's advocate, dating your co-workers or your co-stars or your um, co-composers usually doesn't end well. No. So, no, I agree. I would say that Julian... Uh, Julian Crasser and uh, Vicky Page probably would have ended up badly anyway, but maybe that's just because he's in the Raul part, and I don't like Raul. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it, it's again one of those true to life things where people in uh, acting companies, people, my friends have dated in acting companies, and I've seen successful romances where um, two co stars met, got married, subsequently had kids, and I've seen some very messy breakups. Oh yeah, so I've it seen can that go both work ways. too. I've seen like oh yeah. There's there's listen. One of the worst shifts you'll ever work is with a fighting couple. If it's just it's literally just you and a fighting couple, it's the worst shift you will ever work ever. Yep. Period. I don't so, like if you've never <laughs> experienced that and you and you have an opportunity, go away. Don't do it. Give the shift up. <laughs> I know you might need the money, but give the shift up. I, I just have to play devil's advocate there for um, Lermontov being like, no, you probably shouldn't be in love in the like with someone in the same company, even though he's more like you shouldn't be in love at all, which you know extreme, yeah, and definitely the polar opposite of the Phantom. 
it is extreme, but it's also it is extreme. But it, it also, I think, it just makes sense with that that time period, and also when you think about like the the role of like the woman back then, especially, um, you know, like oh, you got to have it almost back then. It was, it was almost like you got to have one or the other. Like it, it was, it was that yeah. kind. Of, I mean, today it's a bit little. But it just, it just still makes you feel bad. Oh, you do, of it. course, of course. You know? You're just like. It sucks, and then and then like the whole then she then ah, I'm just thinking about it now, and I'm like, oh, Vicky, yeah, oh, Vicky. I, I I hate Julian and and Boris. They're great in the movie, but I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I want to say too, My, Myra Shearer is was actually was actually a ballet dancer, which is that was actually kind of wild. Yes, I mean she would kind of have to be for this part because oh my. God. God. It makes sense because if you're going to do a 17 minute ball- ballet sequence, you really want to show off those skills. And she was kicking butt. She has like 18. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but there's a lot of ballet in this, obviously, yeah. about ballet film. Um, she's, she does so much and she does a great performance. It, it's almost like one of those myths where you like you either are talented in one field, but you lack in the others. Like, um, in some theater companies, people can dance, but they can't act. Or they can sing, and they can uh, act, but they can't dance. Or they can sing and dance, but they can't act. It's very rare that you get a triple threat. And I, I would say the double threat here of being a dancer and an actress gives um, gives Moira just such... She really carries this role so she well. She does a good job. You oh, feel yeah. bad for her. That's the sign of a good. That's the sign of a good performer. Is if you feel bad for them. Exactly. I, I've seen movies where it's like bad things are happening to the main character, and I'm like, ha, deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, very, very mean sometimes when I'm watching movies. Just FYI. And and I I do know you are an unofficial member of the First Order. <laughs> unofficial? Excuse me. I am a card carrying <laughs> member. Listen. <laughs> Just Listen. without a card. But continuing conti- on, uh, continuing on, uh, on this track, we do sometimes we like, we give the Academy Awards crap. You know, sometimes they don't nominate yeah. certain things, and sometimes that they, they like the things that they do nominate or give awards to age pretty badly. I want to put on the record: this was nominated for Best Picture uh, back in the forties. What did it lose? It to? It lost to Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, and even if it didn't lose to that, it. Uh- if it didn't lose to that, it probably could have lost to Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is easily one of Bo- Humphrey Bogart's best movies. But you know what? I'll give it to the I'll give it to those movies that yeah they, they it was a difficult year probably for uh, the Red Shoes to go up for an Oscar, but this definitely is deserving of maybe like a honorable mention because it's so good. And didn't you say like people were turned off a bit by the surrealness of it? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeesh. People don't like people don't like nuance in their monsters. People don't like surrealism in their ballets. What did they like back then? Boiled food. Evidently. <laughs> How is it that you have Yes. Two episodes. Like if you're not a ballet person, how is it now that you have two episodes focused on movies about ballet? <laughs> no, it's not that I'm not a ballet person. It's just I'm not familiar with it. No, I'm just I'm just laughing yeah. at that fact. Yeah, you really don't strike me as like the ballet kind yeah, of. Yeah, I would. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But I mean, she committed. Oh, you mean uh, Moira Shearer as uh, Vicky Page? Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, no, she's really good. And she only did like a few movies, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Finding anyone who is multi-talented in doing at least one of the three trifectas of um, stagecraft or I guess even film crafts because, you know, musicals exist in film. Performance. Um, even though this is not a musical. Yeah, performance arts. You either got to sing, dance. Uh, I'd say sing and play music are in the same category. You make music somehow. You got to dance or you got to act. And being able to do one is fine. Being able to do two is great. Three is rare. I consider myself a t- I consider myself a level two. Can you guys again, think of any modern examples? Oh, like of a triple threat? Yes. Ooh. I like, want like to say I want to say Hugh Jackman, but his singing isn't my absolute favorite. Um but- but the man can carry a Jackman. tune, though. There's no, there's he's, no questioning that. Here's the thing: yeah. he's good, but I've been, I've been kind of biased uh, about his voice ever since Les Mis, um, <laughs> for very personal reasons. I was in a production of Les Mis, and we had an uh, Jean Valjean, who was above and beyond probably one of the best singers that I've ever met. Um, he could sing and he can act. I don't know if he could dance. I never saw him dance. Mm-hmm. Huh. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Uh, but um, as far as like, you know, professional talents that everybody would know, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound stupid again. Um, and maybe I'm just thinking with the greatest showman, but Zach Efron. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. He could yeah. do an aerial ballet. <laughs> you know what? If if I hadn't, like, if, if it was just like his Disney stuff, I probably wouldn't have agreed. But like seeing some of his more recent things. Um, even like the, the one Ted Bundy movie he did, which I, I hated that movie, honestly, but he was really good in it. Oh yeah. You can be a good actor in a bad movie and be like the best oh, part yeah. in it. Oh, without a doubt. Um, yeah. His performance in The Greatest Showman is probably one of my biggest guilty pleasures. I actually got to show that to Joey and that was fun. I, I had a good time watching it. The, the Greatest Showman. I have also seen The Greatest Showman. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I... Coming back to the Red Shoes, um, this is probably my most repeated watch as far as Criterions go. Like, I love The Beauty and the Beast. That That's probably a close second. But this is the one that I'll put on as, like, my comfort Criterion. I just, I, it just hits so close to home. Again, as a performing arts person, you relate to any story that has to deal with, like, the backstage drama, the onstage angst, like, everything that happens, you relate to it so much. And it's just so well crafted, and it's such a beautiful film. And the music they have going for it—I, I, who did the music for this? We mentioned, um, we mentioned the composer for Phantom. Who did the music for this? That is something I'm going to look up right. Um, Brian Easdale. Sorry, I threw that. I threw that like Brian? Right out of left field. No, no, no. You're good. Brian. Um, I, and I, <laughs> I think he won. Uh, he won an Oscar for this, actually, uh, for the music. They won for uh, mu- oh, the music and the art direction uh, by Hein Heckroth and Arthur Lawson uh, did the art direction for this movie. Very well deserved. Also nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best um, best Editing. Which, actually, another weird, like, weird, strange, like, fun fact about, um, about Michael Powell is that his... Is that his um, his widow, um, Thelma um, Thelma uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, 
uh, is actually like Martin Scorsese's editor on a lot of things. Oh, oh really? Yes. Well, I guess that makes sense. Um, which makes sense also. That makes sense. also too, given like um, Scorsese is a huge. Like, we mentioned Scorsese a bunch, but he's a huge fan of Powell and Pressburger. Like in uh, Raging Bull, where there's like the build up to like the one fight, but you never see the fight, and it's just the build up and the aftermath. That was sort of taken from Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, where a lot of it is just like the build up to like a big event, like a war or like a like a like a fencing competition, and then the aftermath. Because whatever happened in the middle doesn't necessarily matter. It's the build up and what falls out out of that. So, the Red Shoes and Phantom. I think it's it's a fun double feature because one of them is just kind of melodra- melodramatic trash that I absolutely love. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you call Phantom of the Opera trash? I know you own figures of Lon Chaney as the Phantom. Chaney is not. Chaney is not trash. You Chaney know what? is not trash. Uh, listen, in Joey's defense, he also owns Congo toys, and that's also a terrible movie. That's, that is a terrible movie. Period. So, there's no redeeming Congo. I'm not saying. I mean, you're not wrong. So not to not to imply that Phantom's terrible because I don't think it's terrible, but. That's my point. Yeah. No, it does work because they're oddly parallel to each other. And it's kind of fun to seek, uh, seek out those parallels and see how different it is if, you know, maybe, what if the Phantom was handsome? What if he was successful? What if he didn't want Christine? That's kind of like what it is. It's a weird Ellsworld picture of what could have been. Although the funny thing that is missing to make it a perfect parallel, no opera. There's no there's no singing. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's funny because no. um, doesn't I think Craster at one point says he's going to write an opera or, or or something. He did. He did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. He did at the yeah. He said at the end, I'm, I'm we writing. We got really an opera. close there. We were so close, so close to a perfect parallel. Darn oh, it, well. We can't we can't have perfect no. things. See again, Julian. I don't like you. I don't like but you, Julian. Anyway, Julian. Anyway, I, I, I'm glad. I'm really glad we did this episode. Really glad. Uh, th- thank you so no, much. For thank you for, me. for coming on. I know it's please you. You elevate this episode. Really, Are seriously. you kidding me? It's actually going to be fun editing this episode. Honestly, listening to this conversation. Listen, if it was just Joey and I, well, it normally is. But typically, it's it's just us. Now it's like even better because there's a third person. So, well, it's just like thank you for inviting me on here because a, I love Joey and I love you too, Richard. Oh, thank uh, you. But I I've loved this podcast and these are two movies that I love so much. So I I've, I've just had the time of my life rambling about these two films with you guys both, and this is. These are the films that have influenced me very much so. So, there you go. There you go. There you go. Boom. Anyway, as always, folks, as always, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Our next episode will be November 27th, so keep on the lookout for that. Anyway, tune in next time. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you for listening to Two Dudes, One 
double feature. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special shout out to Allison Cola. You were a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. And to John and Kenny Armstrong for making such splendid music as you guys always do. And of course, a hint for next week's double feature. Two underrated animated Disney classics with a little bit of detective work and a little bit of adventure. Stay tuned.